If you've got a Bible, go ahead and get it out. Open it up to Luke chapter 12. We're going to take sort of the middle portion of this, which, is, which are verses 13 down to 34. So when you get that out, I want to just start this morning uh, by reading our passage. And so Luke 12, verse 13, uh, says this. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And that is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of, uh, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you that you have done great things for us. Thank you that chief among those great things is the sending of your son on our behalf. He is the hero of heaven who conquered the grave. He's free to every captive, broken every chain. God, we gather together this morning in order to celebrate that. We gather together this morning in order to lift high the name of Jesus and to rejoice in what he's done on our behalf and how he's knit us together as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, we join together in submission to your word. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? God, illuminate to our hearts, make clear to our hearts where it is that we may need to grow in our submission to your rule and your reign in our life. God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I spent some time at one point in my life working through what I, a thing I didn't know existed, and that is this catalog of writings by Mark Twain that are all about God and religion, specifically through the lens of Christianity. He had some interesting thoughts about that, and he has 
put together actually a significant number of writings in his life about that topic. I didn't know that those existed until I did a research project and read all of them. And one of those writings he calls the Revised Catechism, where he takes what is essentially the Westminster Catechism, and he puts it into American verbiage. And so his take on the first question of the Westminster Catechism, which is what is the chief end of man, to enjoy God and glorify him. And he says this, what is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly, if he can. Honestly, if he must. That's those are the opening words in Mark Twain's The Revised Catechism. I want to address some walls this morning that probably went up in you immediately as we read this passage. Wall number one, you thought to yourself, well, we came to church this morning and the preacher is going to talk about money again. We are going to talk about money this morning. And that is no more my favorite topic to talk about than it is your favorite topic to hear about. But we're going to talk about money because Jesus talks about money. And the reason Jesus talked about money was not to get rich. He talked about money because our relationship to our money says something about our hearts. In fact, our relationship to money may have more practical daily impact on our lives than any other relationship that we engage with on a daily basis, whether that be human or to something inanimate like cash. Wall number two, you might have thought to yourself, He's going to make me feel guilty and try to get me to give this morning. Okay, the goal today is absolutely not to create some vague sense of guilt in anyone. The goal is not to increase the offering that comes in today, tomorrow, or next week. The goal today is the same as the goal every day. Our goal this morning is to see, cherish, and treasure Jesus, and then to allow Jesus to shape and form every part of us. And that includes down to the sort of nitty-gritty about how we relate to our money. And so we're, gonna, we're going to walk through this passage where Jesus takes what is a fairly shallow question and gives a very deep answer about how it is that we relate to our money and our stuff. Here's the landing point this morning. And that is that seeking the kingdom requires wanting better than what the world has to offer. We're going to sort of break the passage into a few pieces. So verses 13 down to 21 are going to kind of diagnose the problem for us. And then 21 through 31, Jesus gives a list of truths about who the Father is. Then from 31 to 34, he gives the antidote to the problem. And then I want to end by just asking some questions to hopefully help us examine our hearts as it comes to how is it that we relate to our money and our stuff. So look at verse 13 with me. This is going to sort of set the context for where Jesus gives this. He says, or we're told that someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. If you were here a couple weeks ago or you caught it on the podcast, you might remember sort of the context of what's happening in Luke chapter 12. If you've got a red letter Bible, that would help you see the context. Jesus is giving a large string of teaching to this very large crowd that's gathered there around him. And so in verses 1 through 12, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the reality of hidden sin, that that sin will 
one day be uncovered. He's teaching about the nature of who God is, that he's unthinkably powerful, but also unthinkably loving. He's teaching about the importance of proclaiming the kingdom, that Jesus expects us to do that. And he's teaching about the truth of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit isn't to be trifled with, but is absolutely to be trusted. And all of that is illustrated both by Jesus and our relationship to those things by the words that spill out of us. Our words are the overflow of our hearts, and it's our hearts that are ultimately what God judges in an eternal sense. Are they submitted to his kingdom, his rule, his reign, or are our hearts in rebellion against it? And in the middle of that teaching about these very deep topics, hidden sin, who the Father is, what the Son expects of us, that the Holy Spirit can be trusted, a guy raises his hand and says, okay, thanks for that, Jesus. Can you help me and my brother figure out who gets what out of our father's inheritance? And Jesus is quick to answer that in verse 14. That that ain't my job. Don't make that my job. Who am I that I should be arbiter in your family dispute over who gets what from your family's inheritance? And then Jesus jumps into the very deep response to that very shallow question. Notice verse 13. Someone from the crowd says to him, notice verse 14. He responds to that person who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you. Then notice verse 15. He then told them. Them is the crowd. That's thousands upon thousands. It's like we said That word myrios in Greek usually referred to at least 10,000 people. So a guy asks the question, Jesus responds very quickly to that question, says, that's not my job. Then he turns to the whole crowd and he says, watch out, be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus jumps into this parable. Your heading here, in whatever translation of the Bible that you're using, likely says that this is the parable of the rich fool, some form of that. Jesus starts by saying, watch out or be on guard. Literally, he's saying, make visible all sorts of greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of of possessions. He tells a story about a man whose land is very productive and he works hard and he reaps a big harvest and then he's trying to figure out what to do. And the man decides, verses 16 to 20, that he's going to tear down the barns that he has, build some bigger ones, store the harvest and all of his possessions in those barns, and then sit back and say, take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Let me make a quick note. The problem that Jesus is going to highlight here is not with working hard. The problem isn't with making money or reaping a large harvest. The problem isn't in storing what we've reaped. The problem is not in being wise with what God has given us to steward. The problem becomes clear in verse 19. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years, Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. The problem is with the man's heart. Having built those big barns, he's able to say to himself, and your translation might actually say this, 
he'll say to his soul, soul, you have stored up many goods for many years. This man would say, soul, you've done good work. Take it easy. Enjoy the good life. Eat, drink, be happy. It's that attitude that illustrates the problem. What is visible in his heart? Watch out, be on guard, make visible to yourself. Well, the rich fool thinks to himself, I've made it. I've accomplished what life is all about. Big barns, lots of stuff, sit back, kick my feet up, take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. And what is Jesus' response to that? You're a fool. That is foolish. Because this very night, your life is demanded of you. That's still in the parable. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? A quick note about the word greed that sort of heads this passage. Your translation, depending on what you use, may say to be on guard or to watch out for all covetousness. We don't use the word covet very much, so modern translations go with the word greed. But the link is to the 10th commandment, not to covet. The way we think about this warning is that we need to make visible to ourselves our greed, our desire for wanting more of what the world has to offer. We need to make visible to ourselves, literally, our flesh's insatiable desire for more. More money, but greed can extend outside the realm of materialistic things. More power, more influence, more food. That's what greed is. It's this unquenchable desire that you and I have for more. So Jesus hears the man's question, says that he isn't in the inheritance settlement business. Then he looks to the crowd of his followers around him and says, the real issue here is that we all want more of what the world has to offer. And we're tempted to think that what the world offers is what life is all about. If your translation of the Bible didn't break these things into sections and head this one as the rich fool... We would read about this man, and in our American suburban context, we'd say to himself, this guy's killing it. Like, I wonder what the side hustle is. I wonder if he could give me the hack for coming up with more stuff and being able to build bigger barns so that I can kick back and take it easy. That is the world that we swim in. That's the air that we breathe in suburban America. Thankfully, our Bible alerts us to the fact that that's not actually how we should view this individual. And Jesus alerts us that our greed is foolish. And so I want to draw some conclusions about greed here as we finish diagnosing the problem before we move into the next section. The first one is this. Greed is what we would call a root sin, Greed or covetousness is a sin in itself. The Bible is clear about that. The 10th commandment tells us that. And that's greed in all of its forms. Wanting an insatiable desire for more money, more stuff, more influence, more food, more pleasure, more relationships, whatever the case might be. 
That's a sin. But greed can be hard to identify and name in our hearts. And just think about that for yourself for a second. When was the last time you sat down with an accountability partner, the person discipling you, or you walked into your small group and said, guys, I need to confess some sin. I'm greedy. It's hard to see that within our own hearts. But greed is a root sin. And so oftentimes what greed does is it causes us to sin in a different way. And it's that sin that points out our greed. You'd be willing to lie for the promotion. Cut corners in order to make a little bit more money. Step on people as you're working your way to the top and climbing the ladder. And it's only when we look at all of the other sins that are springing from the root of greed that if we're willing to be honest with our hearts, we would say, hold on, it's not just that I lied or that I treated these people poorly, or that I was cutting corners, or that I put my integrity in jeopardy. It's that the reason I did that is because I want more. My greed gave, or was the root from which that fruit sprang. In our context, when we're swimming in material wealth and possessions, we don't often see our greed until it starts sprouting other sins. Greed is a root sin. The passage also tells us that greed is a fool's folly. What's the end game with the bigger barns and the more stuff and the eating and drinking and kicking back and taking it easy? Jesus' point is that you can't take that with you. There is no end point to your greed. Not only is there no end point to our greed, there's also something better than wanting what the world has to offer. And that would be richness toward God. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. Having abundance in him rather than just the abundance of possessions. And so the third sort of reality to the problem here is that greed is actually wanting too little out of life. Verse 21 transitions us to the next portion of this extended teaching from Jesus about our relationship to money. And what we really ought to want is to be rich toward God. We need to want better than simply trying to fulfill our flesh's insatiable desire with the stuff of the world. That better wanting is a richness that is full of God and his good rule and his reign. Rather than just bigger barns and more stuff, storage lockers, full of possessions that we'll never go and see until it's time to sell them. We need to want better in life than just wanting that sort of existence. Seeking the kingdom requires wanting better than what the world has to offer. So then you kind of take verse 21 and work all the way down through verse 31. And what Jesus does is he then gives a list of truths and he puts them in sort of illustrative form. He's talking about ravens and flowers in the field and Solomon. But look at where it starts. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you. It would be easy to take this passage, especially because if you're using the CSB, it heads this, the cure for anxiety. It'd be easy to take this passage and say, oh, this must be just about anxiety in general, like all anxiety. 
But the therefore connects this to what Jesus just had to say about greed, which means that Jesus is actually talking about a very specific kind of worry and anxiety. And that's the sort of anxiety and worry that arises from finances, often created by our own greed. The vast majority of marital relational problems that exist in America spring from money. How do we spend it? Do we have enough of it? Is there a bunch of debt? It's that sort of anxiety that Jesus wants to give the cure for. Jesus says in verse 21, you ought to seek to be rich toward God. That would be being rich toward a God who is rich and who's good with his riches toward his people. Jesus wants to help relieve the stress that money and greed and possessions bring into our lives. He is gentle and loving and kind and good to us, even down to the practical everyday matters of our lives, like finances. And he's so good and so kind and so loving and so gentle that he wants to lift from us the heavy stress and anxiety that greed anchors down our souls and our minds with. Jesus knows that greed does not ultimately provide us comfort. It holds us captive to our desires and to the false promises of the world. And so in response to that, he states some truths in order to help set us free. Truth number one, need is real. Verse 22, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, about the body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Need is real. You need to eat. You need clothing and shelter and protection from the natural world. Jesus doesn't minimize that. There are people in the world, there are people in this community, there are potentially even people in this room who face the difficult reality of need every single day. But there is also the reality that in settings like ours, we have a very difficult time distinguishing between need and want. Jesus acknowledges that need is real, but he also does not coddle our inordinate wanting. Someone in this room might be trying to figure out how to afford housing and clothing and food because they face real need. You look at the events around the world right now, there are most certainly people in places like like Afghanistan or Haiti or New Orleans who are waking up this morning trying to address real need in their life. What's most likely in our setting and for most people in this room is that we've created stress and anxiety over money because we've lived lives swimming in greed and we've piled up debt based on wants that far, far exceed our needs. Maybe this morning the most important thing that the Holy Spirit could do in your heart is to help you break away from wanting more than you need. So the first thing that Jesus has to do is show you that that's true in your heart, that your wants so far exceed your needs And your greed is so insatiable that you've created stress and anxiety in your life because you've not submitted to the good rule and reign of Jesus in your life as it relates to your money and your stuff. And you've instead rebelled against that and given in to your flesh's desire for more and more and more. Jesus wants to free us from that slavery by teaching us to want something 
better. Need is real. The second truth in this passage is that worry is futile. Can any of you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to even do a little thing, why worry about the rest? You cannot add to your life by worrying. In fact, if greed takes over and you weigh down your soul by chasing after your insatiable desires, you only compound the issue by then worrying. What an incredible scheme by Satan that is. Get them to want more than they need. Get them to insulate their lives with the comfort that wanting more and more and acquiring more and more and more desires. Then get them to worry about what they've done with their finances because they've accumulated more than they need. So now he's weighed you down, anchored your soul down with two things. Your own greed and your worry. But because greed is so hidden, we're not often worried about our greed We're worried about how to keep feeding our greed. That's effectiveness on behalf of the enemy right there. Jesus wants to free us from that slavery by teaching us to want something better. I want to take just the quickest of moments here. This reality is what is so insidious in the prosperity gospel that people would go into, whether it be American churches where people really are struggling with the reality of greed, or they would go into incredibly impoverished areas of the world and say, what God really wants for you is for you to have more. And how you'll know that God really loves you and is blessing you is because you'll have more. Think about how broken that is how broken that is in an American context where the desire for more is literally dragging people down spiritually. But think about also how gross that is in a very impoverished place where the preacher stands up front and says, how you'll know that God is really blessing you is if you have more and the route to more is to give me more. Give me more and then God will bless you by giving you more and we'll all feed our greed together. That's gross. It's broken, and it's ugly. Truth number three, creation is cared for. That's how Jesus really seeks to calm our worry here. Ravens are fed without sowing, reaping, storing, or building. Flowers are clothed without spinning or weaving. The argument there is from lesser to greater. If God is taking care of ravens and humpback whales and howler monkeys and black widow spiders, gross, and koala bears, he's going to take care of you too. The one key difference between those aspects of creation and humanity is that they're driven by needs. We're driven by insatiable wants. God is a God who cares He's a God who sovereignly, providentially, and actively engages with the world that he created. That includes the beauty of roses and sunflowers and prairie grasses and you. The difference is that leopards in the jungle and lilies of the valley are content to either eat what they need or be clothed with the beauty of their single petals, 
Meanwhile, we want cupboards and refrigerators and living rooms and basements and storage units full of more than we could ever possibly want. Jesus wants to free us from that slavery by teaching us to want something better. And so in verse 31, which is the next transition verse, Jesus tells us that his followers, that followers of Jesus, want something better. Seek his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Jesus says that this sort of flesh-driven, insatiable craving is what the people of the world do. The Gentile world. That's shorthand for saying the people who aren't the people of God. They eagerly seek all these things. Your father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom. Look at verses 30 and 31. They're connected by the word seek. The Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, but seek his kingdom. The people of the world are driven to worry and anxiety. They're driven by an insatiable desire for more, and so they seek stuff. The people of the kingdom live in peace and contentment by seeking something better, and that better thing is the kingdom. And so, verses 31 to 34, Jesus gives us the antidote here. And first and foremost, step one is seek the kingdom. Seek something different than what the rest of the world seeks. When you were saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and you were ushered into his kingdom, the Holy Spirit remade you. And now the Holy Spirit is also working inside of you to remake you. And that includes your wants and your desires. The people of the kingdom are no longer driven by the wants of the world. They're driven by the rule and the reign of God. They no longer crave what the world craves. They crave the king. They want what the king wants. They want what the king gives what does the king want? The king wants the display of his glory to the ends of the earth. He wants this so much that he planned the cross in eternity past. And it's the cross that is the place where the glory of God is most clearly seen. The cross where the, is the place where the king is victorious over Satan. The cross is where the kingdom comes breaking through the ugliness and brokenness of this world with all of its beauty and wonder and with its king. It's the cross where a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are secured by the king and ushered into the kingdom. The cross is where broken, sinful, rebellious people are brought into joyful submission to the king and his kingdom. The cross is what compels those people to live in a manner that displays the glory of the king and his kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. We don't usher the kingdom in or create it. We live in submission to it. And by doing so, we display its reality. Seek that, Jesus says. And in seeking that, be set free by the king from the cravings of the world. That's the antidote to our greed-induced anxiety and worry. Our greed says, more for me, more for me, more for me, more for me. The kingdom of God says, less of you, more of the king, more of the king, more of the king. And so if you want to break the cycle of insatiable desire that exists within your heart, get your life squarely on top of the gospel, more of the king, more of the king, more of the king. And as you do that, trust the Father. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. Why? Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Yes. 
What's the Father give? What's he delight to do? To give you the kingdom. So you're living a life that says more of the king, more of the king, more of the king. And what does the Father delight to do? Give you more of the king, more of the king, more of the king. You live a life that says more for me, more for me, more for me. And what does the world rejoice to give you? More anxiety, more anxiety, more anxiety. Which way do you want that? The Father cares for you. That's a truth. He delights to give you the kingdom when you seek it. That's the antidote. Think back to Luke chapter 11. Jesus said that when we pray, the Father gives us the good gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit then doing inside the people of God? Kingdom building. He's building the kingdom, the rule and reign of God inside of you, and he's building the kingdom through you. What do you need? Or you have need? Pray. God cares. And he will provide. And as he provides, he'll not only meet your needs, but he will delight to build his kingdom in and through you in the process. Want better than extra stuff in your house. Want something better than extra stuff in your lake house. Want something better than extra stuff in your vacation home. There's nothing wrong with your lake house or your vacation home. The problem, Jesus says, is when you've tied yourself to the lake house or the vacation home or your regular home, rather than tying yourself to the king. Want the kingdom of God and trust that the Father delights to build it in and through you. And then Jesus says, verse 33, be generous. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. When we're seeking the kingdom rather than stuff, We're seeking the king rather than more money or more possessions to fulfill our insatiable cravings. When we're trusting the Father to joyfully provide the kingdom, it frees us up to be generous. Specifically, to be generous toward kingdom realities. We would see the needs of the world and be compelled by the gospel and our submission to the kingdom to give toward that which displays the glory of God and the reality of the kingdom. That means that we are generous Generous toward the lost being saved, to sending missionaries to the end of the earth, to feeding the hungry and healing the sick and teaching the young, to proclaiming the gospel alongside acts of compassion, to dignifying the poor with care and work and necessities. And the beauty of all of that is that when the people of God act in this way, we become the means by which God fulfills his promise to provide. He's already said that he would. And when God's people live in submission to God's kingdom, They seek that first. They're freed from wanting the stuff of the world. Freed to be generous. God then fulfills his promise through the generosity of his people. In fact, if the church in America alone lived in this way, the vast majority of the needs of the world could be met. If we used our possessions in a manner that was truly submitted to the kingdom and committed to the glory of God, both the kingdom and God's glory would resound in striking beauty against the backdrop of a dark, broken, selfish, greedy world. Seek the kingdom, trust the Father, and be generous. That, Jesus says, is the antidote for the problem of our greed. But remember where the whole passage started. 
Watch out. Be on guard. Make visible to yourself the reality of your greed. That requires hard work in our own hearts. Seeking the kingdom requires wanting better than what the world has to offer. Look at how the passage ends. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To put that another way, where your treasure goes, there your heart is going also. I want to end this with a little pastoral gut level honesty. The easy sort of results driven way out of this passage today would be for me to give you a list of places where you could cut a check and feel good about yourself. Write one quick check, send it to the place that Tim put on the screen. I'm not greedy. My heart's clear. And then we could like next week put up on the screen how much money we all sent to places. We could applaud ourselves, pat ourselves on the back, say, whew, we're not a greedy church, and then move on attached to our stuff. I don't want the easy way out of this though because Jesus isn't interested in the easy way out of this. Jesus wants you to have true freedom from your greed and that means digging into the deepest places of your own heart. There's much more that could be said about money. In fact, Jesus is going to say much more about how his followers handle money. We'll get to that other stuff in Luke, but we have to start with the heart. That's where Jesus began this passage. Watch out, be on guard, make visible to your heart the reality of greed and how he ended this passage. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the whole thing is not about cutting a get out of guilt free check. The whole thing is about examining your heart. So I'm gonna give you a list of questions here. What's your heart's primary attachment? Is it to the stuff of the world or is it to the kingdom of God? What does your bank statement from last month reveal about that? Literally, print it. Walk through it. Do you view yourself primarily as the owner of your stuff? The owner of your stuff toward the end of your own comfort and enjoyment like the man in the parable? Or do you view yourself primarily as the steward of your stuff on behalf of the kingdom to the end of which is God's glory and the display of his rule and reign? Is your allegiance to comfort as provided by your stuff or is your allegiance to the king? In the moment, while you're standing in Target or scrolling through Amazon, can you distinguish between a want and a need? And when you do distinguish, do you act accordingly? If you're retired, is your retirement about relaxing in the ease of what you earned for yourself or is your retirement about the kingdom of God? To our retired sisters and brothers, you reached the finish line of your career But when you stepped across the finish line of your career, you did not step across the finish line of your usefulness in the kingdom of God. 
the final season of your life or seasons of your life post-retirement, God wants to do and can do so much through you. He wants and can do so much through what it is that you have worked hard to acquire. Now, that does not mean to not be wise with your finances. That does not mean to not want to be caring toward your family. It does mean that when you reach retirement, you don't just look at the number in the bank account and say, we're going to live it up until this is over. You would look at the number in that retirement account and say, God, your glory and your kingdom until you take me home to be with you and allow him to lead and guide how it is that you spend your last seasons of life. If you're wealthy, now we're all wealthy on a global standard, but when I say wealthy, I mean If you're wealthy by American suburban standards, is your wealth about your comfort in the here and now, or is your wealth about the kingdom of God and the glory of the king? That boat, that nice car, that nice second and third car, They aren't the issue in and of themselves. The issue is how your heart views and pursues and uses and attaches to them. The answer here is not a check or a guilt gift. The answer is a life reordered by the power and wonder and resources of Jesus, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God in your life. When we talk about being gospel-centered people, we're talking about being people who put the gospel at the front of who we are. We stake our lives upon it, fix our eyes upon it, set our hearts and our souls upon it, and we allow that gospel to be what reorders our lives. To be a follower of Jesus is to say, I submit to the kingdom of God, and all that that means in all aspects of my life. I want to end where I started. My point this morning is not to increase the giving this morning. By the grace of God and as a testament of his goodness, throughout this COVID season, our church budget has been totally taken care of. Which frees me up in a pastoral sense to not stand up here and talk about money primarily thinking about keeping the lights on next week but instead to be able to stand up here as your pastor and think primarily about your heart and your discipleship and who we are as a people rather than who this church is as like a building and an institution and an organization. I'm so thankful for that because it allows me to stand up here and say genuinely, this is about your heart as a follower of Christ. Not about paying our staff, keeping our ministries going. My deep desire is that each and every one of us would have freedom from greed. That's Jesus's deep desire. That rather than an insatiable desire for more for me, more for me, more for me, we would be followers of Jesus who live with an insatiable desire for more of the king, more of the king, more of the king. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and worship together.